Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fucking heimers? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my show. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Uh, pretty big show today. Roger Waters from uh, Pink Floyd is here. Uh, he was here. He was in the garage. We talked about music mostly. And it was pretty exciting. I get nervous with the uh, legends, with the towering legends of rock and roll. So that's coming up. It's been a rough few days here at the Cat Ranch. It's been, it's been a rough few days as some of you who are following the struggle uh, or the process or the slow moving towards the castration of uh, young Buster Kitten. It's done. Balls are gone. I had his balls cut off. And I believe it was the right thing to do, but it seemed to open up some, I don't know. You know, when you have a few cats, which I do, three indoor cats and one feral outdoor cat, uh, things sort of happen all at once. I don't know. I had to take Buster in, and then Wednesday, LaFonda started acting fucking weird. She was hiding in the closet, not eating. That's not good for a cat. That means there's something wrong. So I tried to give her some food. Wouldn't take it. Then she moved to the linen cabinet, tucked herself into there, hiding, not eating. Problem. God damn it. So now I got to bring Buster in to get his balls cut off, and I get I got to get the little feline fist of fury that is uh, LaFonda into a box as well and bring both these fuckers in because there's something wrong with her. I guess at some point I'm going to have to accept that these cats are going to fade out, pass on. But so I get Fonda in the box, and then I get uh, I get Buster in the bag, and Monkey's under the bed. Why is he under the bed? He's not eating. What are you fucking kidding me? All at once. So I got to pick Fonda up in a little while. Monkey might have to stay overnight. Buster's back, and it's just it's aggravating to me. But I think that it's weird as I every time I'm heading towards something big like Carnegie Hall. That's uh, this Friday. You know, these it's things start to cycle out. And I don't know if it's the power of my subconscious seeking chaos that I feel grounded in. And I think these cats represent part of me, you know. I think Fonda subconsciously, Fonda is like this, like I you know, I'll admit it, just a you know, sort of tough, defensive, distrusting, uh, feminine force that's very aggressive. I'll I'll own that. I got that in me. Monkey is this sort of kind of like nervous, 
kind of scared, a little insecure force. Like he's under the bed. Fonda's lethargic. So those two parts of my being are, are, are sort of nervous as we move towards this. Buster, what does he represent? He's kind of crazy and childish and just had his balls cut off. And I'm trying to you know, sort of grow in my relationship. So I think all the metaphors are there. I think it all works out. I'll let you know how those cats are. Uh, I don't know right now, but it's been a pretty, pretty fucking gnarly few days. I'm looking at a picture right now, an old Polaroid of my friend Dave Bishop and myself from high school. I must have been in 10th grade. Maybe he was in 11th grade standing in front of a Christmas tree that would have been at his house. And uh, Dave passed away. Some of you know that years ago. Recently saw his brother. But me and Dave were were best friends for a few years there in high school. So I remember this one time. I don't remember why we went to Santa Fe. This is a Pink Floyd story. I have two revolving around animals and one that I think is important to everybody. Was, uh, you know, we go up for some reason. Maybe we went up there for dinner. But it was me and Dave. I think it was after he got rid of his uh, 73 Firebird, the gold one. He had a Scirocco. And his father owned a stereo store, so he always had a great sound system. I remember we, we were there. We were in Santa Fe. We were a little drunk. We were smoking weed. And we decided to drive back to Albuquerque on Old 14 behind the Sandias, which is a quiet, kind of lightless drive. And there was a full moon. And I remember we were smoking a joint. And we're driving back. We probably shouldn't have been driving, but that's Whatever. You know, it happened back then. I was probably 15. He was probably 16, 17. Get your driver's license when you're 15 there. And we're just cruising down that old down that old back road, down old 14. High, late at night, full moon. That's the only thing lighting the environment. And Animals was playing. Pink Floyd Animals. And this is the first time I remember, outside of money and some parts of Dark Side of the Moon, kind of plowing into the consciousness. This was the first time where I went on the fucking journey that is animals. And the first time that I registered that goddamn guitar in dogs, those two guitars, it sounds like. But that was it, man. It was almost like transportive, transformational, full moon, driving about 70, no one else on the road, pitch black out except for moonlight, heading back behind the Sandia Mountains, me and my best buddy, high, went all the way through animals, and I don't think we were, either one of us was the same again. That's the power of Pink Floyd. Took you somewhere. Whether it was a mental environment or a feeling or an endorphin rush, whatever, it changed your perception with or without drugs. That was the amazing thing about Pink Floyd. The other animal's memory I have was when I lived in Boston on Carlton Street off Beacon with my roommate Lance, Lance Mayon. Again, pot was involved, and there was a video camera involved. I had uh, some sort of camera. I think it recorded VHSs. Lance and I got stoned. We sat on that shitty couch in that shitty dark apartment with the camera on us, high out of our fucking mind, and played. Uh, I played air guitar, Lance played air drums to both sides of animals, and that's recorded. 
I've not seen that tape. I don't know where that tape is. Might be in a box somewhere, but it exists in the world. Me and Lance stoned playing air guitar and drums for the entire duration of Pink Floyd Animals. And it was another great experience. So happy it's documented. If anyone finds it, let me know. And then, of course, the other important thing for Pink Floyd and myself is that transition in time where you move through on Dark Side of the Moon, where you move through the bells, the alarms, and then the ticker starts. Ding, 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 ding. And then... Uh, and then those drums. Boom, 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 That's the kind of moment where if you're with somebody in a car and you're both listening to it and you both understand it, or even if there's four of you, where you're just sort of looking at each other and you're waiting. You're waiting to take your hands off the wheel and play some air drums. Boom, boom, Pink Floyd, great fucking band. I sometimes forget how fucking great they are and how much they meant to all of us. You know who I'm talking to. So Roger Waters came over here and he actually talked to my neighbor, got out of his whatever car he was driving with the people he was with. And my neighbor was, I think they talked about plants. And uh, my neighbor had no idea who it was. And when I told him he was beside himself, with uh, feeling stupid. It's the interesting thing about Pink Floyd. How many of you could recognize Roger Waters or David Gilmore or the other guys? <laughs> well, when I told Adam that was Roger Waters, he's like, no fucking way. No way. Yes. Yes. So Roger and I talked, and uh, Tickets are on sale now for his 2017 North American tour, Us and Them. Go to rogerwaters.com or aeglive.com to see tour dates and locations and get tickets. And right now, uh, you can listen to me and Pink Floyd's Roger Waters. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts it's nice to see you man i appreciate you coming it's good to be here you know i i always get a little nervous really uh-huh i do i do when i talk to uh, certain musicians and uh musical artists because um you know, like I had John Prine in here a few weeks ago. I listened to it. Oh, yeah? You're a Prine fan? Of course. How great is that guy? 
Those songs, man. Uh, hang on a minute. How great is John Prine? Hang on, let me try to figure <laughs> this out. Quantify it. Yeah, he's, he's great, great. Right, but you know, you talk to a guy like that, and, and, and not unlike yourself, you have this a tremendous history of music. Yeah. And then you realize in, the, in a moment as a, as a fan, and also as a guy who's going to talk to you, like, um, well, I better get caught up somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you're sort of looking at 50 years yeah. Of, uh, of of expression and it's sort of uh, it's an amazing thing and yeah. it's a little daunting at, at times I, I, I believe you yeah do you look back at uh, your creative life and think like oh my god no of course I, not oh good good <laughs> I, I look at uh, I kind of live in the present yeah yeah I think well, I was read a, a piece uh, about the the Desert Land show th- right. that you just did and uh, it was uh, and I almost I got choked up reading that piece I'm doing tomorrow Right. Yeah. And and like from what I found fascinating and not unlike also the tour that you did with The Wall is that if you have a timeless piece of, of art or a timeless song or a timeless idea that it stays relevant by just kind of reloading the metaphor that already exists. Right? Maybe. Yeah. Does that make sense? Though? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, talking about The Wall, um, I did that for three years from on the road. Yeah. And so I'm kind of pretty over it. Uh, right. Mind you, that we finished three years ago. Yeah. But you're using uh, the, the some of the wall with the show you're doing tomorrow, right? Um, very, very little. Oh, really? Yeah. We we do, uh, what do we do from the from the wall? We do Brick 2, we do Mother. But you're able to make it fresh. I mean, I'm just yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, r- yeah, relating yeah. to the present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We made a fresh show just for these five gigs. We did three gigs in Mexico. Uh, the last one in, in Socolow Square, which was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, because it's poor people there because right. it's free. Right. So instead of getting, you know, rich people at the front, you get people who've been up all night uh-huh. queuing. And, the, uh, it's magic. And absolute they, magic. Were they appreciative? Did they love it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were all singing along. And I was making, I I, I took it upon myself to make speeches in, in Mexico. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, about the disappeared, you know, about the 43 kids. And in fact, there's 28,000 people missing in, in the last eight years. It's crazy, so, man. And about half of them have disappeared on Pena's watch. Uh-huh. So I had a word with him, which was interesting because his palace is just to the left and there's a line of soldiers along the top standing there with rifles. I'm not suggesting I was in any danger. <laughs> But there were guys with rifles uh, up there. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of the local people said, fuck me, he's got some balls on him to stand there and say that crap here. You did, but you you probably were in danger on some level. All it takes is oh, one guy. Yeah, on some level, probably. Because, one guy with a gun uh, yeah. who can disappear. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. not disappearing is not unusual. Anyway, you know, you only get one crack at this as far as we know. The life thing. Yeah, so you have to decide whether to... Stand up for something or just... Whether, whether to be real or not or not. Right. Did you always find that to be true about you? Did it was something that you learned? I mean, was there a period um, where you were like, I've got to do something else? I mean, I was a lot when I was younger, I was quieter. I never had less conviction. I right. Mean, I, you know, I went through all my teenage years doing all the things that we did in those days, going on all the Marston marches and, you know. What were the marches then at that time? And because I don't, I didn't grow up in England. Uh, all the Marston was. Um, to try and ban nuclear weapons, or right. certainly to get rid of the English independent nuclear deterrent, uh-huh. uh, a name that we never achieved. Right, no one did. But there was some 
you know, great people involved in that movement. So you were politically active as a teenager? Yeah. But you grew up like, because I have no sense of, the, the thing I was thinking before before you came over, and I've talked to a couple of other people that that are around your age and grew up in England, is that as an American, we have, we have no sense of real rubble and destruction from no. war. None. There's no collective memory of it. No. There's no historic memory of it. And and someone from your generation certainly does. Yeah. I mean, you came up in the rubble. Yeah. Do you have memories of it? Uh, no, I was too young for the rubble. I, I was born in 43. So I have lots of memories of the aftermath of World War Two. Yeah. I st- actually, I wrote something last week about something about the plaster bananas remain out of reach to the kids left behind on the beaches. It was part of a longer musing about mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. but it reminded me that the first time I ever saw a banana, I was about five years old, so it would have been 48 or 49, because right. there was no fruit anywhere. And um, I remember being offered this kind of shriveled, small black thing, you know, that <laughs> right, had right. a little bit of yellow showing through the black bits, yeah. and said, I don't want one of those. Yeah. I want one of those, and pointing to the plaster bananas that were hanging up right. in the ceiling of the gross, greengrocer's shop. You, know, right. you can't have one of those. They're made of plaster. You know? Right, the good ones. But that's the why I, want, I wanted one of those that looked like a banana, because <laughs> I'd never seen a banana. Honestly. Yeah, and where do you think that memory came from in terms of what you were writing? What were you putting together? Uh, I, 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 I was actually, it was stream of consciousness stuff about, oh God, it was a mixture of memories of seeing a bloated goat floating in the a marina in Beirut in 1980 or sometime when I was there, when I was back there, or maybe even earlier. I was in Beirut for the first time in 1961 or 62. Doing what? Uh, the first time I was there, um, I was just kind of h- hanging out, really, on the beach with my friend Willa. It was a place that you would go for a holiday? No, it's we had driven an old uh, vehicle there with some undergraduates in the back of it. From um, England? Yeah, and it eventually gave up the ghost on the road to Damascus, like we all do, <laughs> yeah. in one way or another. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not just Saul or Paul or whatever his name was. Uh-huh. Um, and and we were there for for some time before I decided to hitchhike home, which you could do in 1962. But was that a journey that you took? Like, what what inspired it? Were you like reading the Beatniks? Were you looking for something? I mean, why you know to go there of all places? What, what compelled you? We, we were a- on our way to Baghdad, obviously. Oh, I'm Dopey. sorry. I'm g- of course you were. <laughs> you had to get- <laughs> These are not vacation options for Americans. We don't. They're not know- vacation options for anyone anymore. <laughs> that's true. That's yeah, true. But they were then. That's where you went. That's where you were on your way to. Baghdad. You were on your way to Afghanistan. Yeah, uh-huh. via Baghdad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's where everybody was going to. To smoke some hash. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote some short stories later on about that. Uh-huh. And there's one thing that happened to me. In Beirut, that I'll tell you now. It's. It, I wish I had the short story here, but I haven't. So I'll just tell you the bones of it. So there I am. We Willer. This is my friend Willer. Anybody who's seen the film Roger Waters' The Wall, yes. Yeah. There's, there's another old bloke in it with a beard, and we sit and kind of philosophise about things on the side of a hill in the south of France. He's my mate from then. Oh, really? We were eighteen then, uh-huh. and we were in Beirut. So, and we would um, kind of live rough live off the local gay community, you know, get a free lunch and yeah. then go swimming yeah. and whatever. 
um, so we're swimming one day and some kid steals my shoes. Well, you never get out of sight of your passport or your stuff. Yeah. But I was swimming and I saw this kid steal my shoes, wading through the surf, yeah. really difficult. <laughs> Got out, he's gone. Yeah. Melted into the crowd like they do in old black and white movies. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I'm looking around, I saw a cop. Well, in those days, the Lebanese, in their infinite wisdom, have cops whose only job is to look after foreigners, you know. To, sure. Because tourism was Protect important. Protect tourism, then. yeah. Not anymore. No. But it was then. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tricky tourism. So I go, there's a cop, hey, there's, you know, kids stole my shoes, blah, 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 blah. What we're going to do? Oh, we're going to go and look for him. So we set off to look for the needle in the haystack. Yeah. And unbelievably, suddenly I see him. That's him. Yeah, yeah. So the cop goes where, you know, and he's a proper cop with a lace got moustache a bit like you. Yeah. And um, so the, the kid looks at us and he looks at and the cop sees him and uh, and the kid goes flight or flight, you know, and, and it, eventually he goes, um, the cop obviously knows him. He yeah. must know every kid right. on his beat. You <laughs> right, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gives, a, he sort of gives in. You can see resignation. Cop comes over, jabber, 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 jabber. The kid's looking at the ground, you know, a bit sullen. Yeah. And, blah, 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 blah. and eventually, rather reluctantly, he takes my penny loafers off and puts them down. In the story, I think he said he places them in the neutral ground between us. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that. And the kid and the cop then waves him away with a sort of fingers hanging down kind of motion of his hand, like, go away. And yeah. the kid disappears in the crowd. Now, I'm 18 years old kind of Oxbridge you know yeah believe in law and order and all of that what the fuck's going on you're letting him go you know he stole my shoes where's the retribution here and blah 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 <laughs> and I'll never get this it almost makes me tearful to remember it the cop sort of looks at me pityingly and for the first time he speaks to me in English yeah I've heard nothing but jabber so far and he looks at me and he goes he is poor and it went in, it went into my heart like a dagger. I was at least clever enough to understand that I was learning a lesson. Right. And that's what I say at the end of the story. I say, if when we're very young and dumb as shit and know nothing about anything, if we run into our cop, we're very lucky because it's in that moment that we start to learn about love. Yeah. And it was a very, it was a huge moment in my life, just that moment with that cop and that kid. When you walked away from that moment, were you, you kind of jarred? Yeah, I, yeah. I suddenly had to rethink the Everything. whole of jurisprudence. Right. And, you know, and moral, moral conditions and Christianity and right and wrong and all the rest of it. He is poor. You know, this, in fact, I'm, in fact, I'm about to go on the road doing a tour next year. And the new tour is called Us and Them. And it's exact. It's only about that. It's about that. There's a line in the song, the old song from Dark Side of the Moon, Us and Them, which is why I've called the tour Us and Them, which goes with, without, and who'll deny it's what the fighting's all about. And as I say to people, um, unfortunately, almost everyone will deny that that is what the fighting's all about. Almost everyone, if you ask them, will suggest that the fighting is all about right and wrong, about the fact that we're right and they're wrong, and that they're conflicting ideologies of some kind, or that they want to hurt us, and that's why we're fighting. 
And my contention is that it's not about that at all. It's about with, without. Absolutely. It's about distribution of wealth. And it's about they don't even, where we the don't, cash resides. And yeah, they don't even use the word class in this country, in America. Right. There's no, there's no class discussion. Really? No. It doesn't really exist. I mean, Bernie Sanders brought it up and sort of initiated it, but this population has been so ingrained with a fear of communist ideas yeah. that uh, it's it's just, there's no poor people. They're just people that haven't had a, a fair break yet. They're people that the Chinese and the Mexicans and the uh, and Islam have prevented from becoming billionaires. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to Somehow some those Somehow. bastards crept through. The oh, and also the communists the here, the, the, you know, the socialists like, uh, you know, like uh, Hillary and Obama, these big socialists <laughs> have, have really screwed them. It, it's, it's a sad, angry, horrible situation. And I think that that, you know, coming from where you're coming from, at least the conversation existed. I mean, it may not have existed in the way that people were going to be helped, but there was definitely a line. Absolutely. And, and that line is not does not exist here like that politically. I, I actually read a poem last week at Desert Trip, that, and part of it is, um, and it's called Why Cannot the Good Prevail? And I haven't got it with me, so I can't read it to you, but there's a line in it that says, Defenders of the Rosenbergs. And it's it's about that's a passing line in it, the idea that Americans are good people at heart, people to help rebuild the barn. You know, yeah. The doctor's note from long ago: I knew you par enough. Free, yeah. Free medicine, whatever you know. Yeah, the the exactly. idea of helping your neighbor and whatever that is entrenched in the idea of what um, the American dream might have been had it not been subverted by. You know, Vanderbilt and J.P. Morgan and all the others. I think that's true. And I think that's what you hear a lot. You know, one thing you'll always hear, and you hear, I heard it last week with the floods in uh, North Carolina, is that, you know, all of a sudden when there's, when there's a disaster at hand, you know, people come together. Right. I guess in some ways that y you have to bring them to the attention. You have to bring the, them to the attention of, of the disaster that's ongoing. Well, that's, you know what? I'm glad you've said that. What? Well, I'm I'm feeling a need to try and bring to people's attention the fact that the disaster is happening now, but it's global. Always, yeah, and it's been going on for a while. It's not just that, you know, the levee's broken in your neighborhood. This is going been going on for a long time, and it's happening all around us now. And how it, desperately important it is that we arrange in our minds and try and help each other to understand that the less walls we have and the more that we understand that there's no difference between us and them and that Mexicans and Americans, well, you have to uh, face up to the fact that most United States citizens in the very near future are going to be of Mexican origin. The demographics are... That terrifies a lot of white people. Well, how fucking stupid is that? I know. You know. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing to me about you, obviously, you continue to write. You continue to write poems impulsively that if something comes to you, you're going to you know, put it on a paper. Yeah. And, and process it. And these ideas that you're talking about, you know, from the moment that you talked to the cop and you had your mind blown that, you know, all the ideas that run through the, the seminal uh, albums that are yours were, 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 were dark sort of meditations on exactly these things without the exact definition that you, you've sort of rendered it down. Yeah. This is the fight. That it, it seems to me that this darkness of, of, of human uh, endeavor and 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 corruption it's, it's always been there yeah 
right? Yeah. Now, when you started working early on, like I have to assume that shortly after you had this moment with the cop, you started playing music, right? Uh, yeah, well, I was already playing music. What were you doing then? What kind of music? What were you in? What What was moving you musically? Well, I was just going, I was just about to go to college. When you were going to study? Architecture. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Were you passionate about it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, why'd you choose that thing not to be passionate about? My mum. Okay. My mum said, you you, ha- you cannot become a traveling salesman. You'll get bored rigid and you won't make enough money to support the That was the only family. other option? Traveling salesman? No, policeman, she thought. I might be a good policeman. Huh. <laughs> she, she, was there a, not quite an understanding of who and you I can remember looking at her and I hoped it was pityingly in the middle of the night, you know, when I said, Mom, come on, get real. That is not going to happen. Join the man. Are you fucking crazy? Right, a cop or a traveling salesman. These were your options that your mother saw for you. No, my mother didn't see. It. My mother thought, well, a cop, you know, you could that could be a proper career in right. the police. No, but she she was desperate that I should get some kind of qualification so that I didn't get bored. Oh, uh, right. Which is fair enough. I, and w- I would encourage anybody to pursue whatever. If they can find something they're interested in, I would encourage anybody to um, pursue it with vigor. Yeah, sure. And in order to expand their um, mental capacity. And how, how did you grow up economically? What was your world? My mum earned 40 quid a week as a school teacher. Oh, so and, she, and she had a war pension, which was pitiful, but because my father had been killed, right, in 1944, so we were poor. Yeah, so without yeah. being, you know, we always had enough to eat. Right, and we, I was never, well, I was cold because there was never any. I was freezing cold every night in the winter. <laughs> there was no central heating or anything like that. So you were cold till you got down to the kitchen. But did you see yourself as poor? No. Right. Because that's that's the other interesting thing to me that I, I've talked in talking to to British people who were you know around then that you sort of th- this was your lot in life this is where this is how you lived well and we weren't poor I right. mean my grandmother and my mother spent every Sunday afternoon darning socks because you, we didn't buy new stuff we mended old stuff right I right. wore my brother's clothes right know, and it was hand me downs and but poor people when my mother was. Uh, developed her social leanings mm-hmm. and her left-wing politics. She was doing teacher training in Bradford in the north of England, and there they were poor. She taught kids who all through the winter walked to school through six inches of snow with no shoes or nothing. For real. feet, in bare feet, yeah. walking through snow to come to school. They were poor, and they didn't have enough to eat. I've met poor people here in this country. Sure. You know, every everywhere I go with the wall, um, whenever we do brick two anywhere, I always have local children to come and mime, mime that bit. There. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I always try and get them from the most disadvantaged background that I can find. Anyway, we did a gig in San Diego a few years ago, and I looked at these kids and I thought, these are not my kids. I don't know who they are, but so I found out that they they were the children of the executives from the arena and what <laughs> who they thought it would be fun for their yeah, kids right. to be part of the show sure so i went ape shit and got rid of them all find me some proper kids <laughs> so these kids turned up and i went these are more like it yeah these are my kids this is my constituency 
but they knew nothing because normally the kids have rehearsed a couple of dance steps before they arrive because uh-huh. we send them a DVD yeah. to make oh, yeah. So these kids were there and um, we find, we had about half an hour to lick them into shape, which we did. And I said, who, 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 who's in charge of these kids? And there was a very nice black lady there whose name I can't remember now. And so I took her one side. I said, how did you find these children in this short space of time? Yeah. Thank you so much. And I was just talking to her. And she said, uh, they're my clients. And I went, what do you mean they're your clients? And she said, uh, they're my clients. I see them every day. And I, went, I won't try and do her accent. Right. But, and, and anyway, to cut a long story short, she drove a, she drove a van delivering free meals. These are children who don't have enough to eat, mm. whose parents can't feed them. And this lady was part of the social services, and every day she would deliver something to eat to each of these 15 kids. And you, it breaks your fucking heart. You know, you go, wow. Did they have a good time? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, I, the stories of of the children that yeah. we've worked in, yeah. uh, with thousands and thousands over the years, uh, uh, they're always magical. And do you, do you feel that this sensibility was instilled in you by your mother's you know work of course and she came to that later like if she wasn't always that no she grew up in a quite well-off middle-class family and went to boarding school you know had yeah, yeah. very little contact with her parents in fact as as that kind of victorian model of family life was. uh-huh so she must have had her cop moment at some point absolutely do you what do you know about your father's politics well, he he was he was a poor kid in um, in County Durham, mm-hmm. um, in the north of England. His father was killed on the twenty fourth of September, nineteen sixteen. Uh, in the war, in the Somme Somme mm-hmm. offensive, yeah, in in Belgium, and um, so his mother got a job as housekeeper to the local doctor, and so he and my auntie Verna lived in. Attic room, no kidding. Upstairs, uh-huh. and their mother was the housekeeper and cook for the local doctor, so they were in service, if you like. Yeah. Um, so that's who that, how they grew up, and he, but he was bright. And he got a scholarship to the local grammar school, and then he went to university, to uh, Durham University, where I think he studied divinity and physical education. And when he'd done that, he did teacher training, and then he went, which showed he had some gumption. He went to Palestine in 1934 and he was there till 36 teaching at St. George's school. Well, so you come from like teachers. Yeah. 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 And you've become one on some level. On some level, maybe. Yeah. So when your mother tells you, you know, become an art, you know, a cop or a, or a traveling salesman and you go with architecture and then you drift into music or you were actively, you were, you had the dream. I feel more like a, student yeah than a teacher yeah i have to say well that's good i've been watching necca for the do you know who who she is necca yeah uh-uh. she's an she's a nigerian singer double n e k a yeah and, and she's been very popular sort of in germany and in europe and things i've never heard of her well well yes and no uh-huh um yes Great band, and I mean, you, anybody who listens, it's no point in talking about her because you have to see her. Okay, but, but she, yeah, she's she's very socially conscious as well. But when you watch her perform, she's got the most expressive face that you can imagine, and fantastic pipes, perfect pitch. Yeah, 
incredible great writer right. great i right. have no idea how she slipped past my radar for this long but when you see her sing you can see that she is entirely in what she's doing for every second that it's going on and so there is an absolute lack of artifice about it which is i realize watching other artists who can do that prine is a pr good example that Actually, no, he's less. He's less. There's more artifice in John Pride because... Yeah, he's definitely got, got a shtick. He's got a shtick and yeah. he's a great comic and yeah. he's a great deliverer yeah. Yeah, of yeah. material and stuff. Um, but yeah, but that is what one, what one is aiming for is to somehow discover what it is that you feel and express it with nothing getting in the way. Interesting. I think that's true. And but you know, but there, when you're in that place, you, you sort of have to like: Are you going to be raw or are you going to be focused? Do, do, you, you, do you know? Do you know we're wearing almost exactly the same ring? We are the turquoise ring. Oh yeah, Zuni. Isn't that weird? You have, well, that is weird that we're both wearing. That's a, oh my! Did you get that in New Mexico? No, I bought it in New York in 1968. I bet you that's a Zuni ring. Maybe it is Zuni. Definitely. That's a trip, man. Isn't that weird? You want to know what's even weirder? Is that that ring, the reason I got this ring is I got, my dad had a ring that looked like this and I have that, but it was too big for me, but I wanted one that looked like that. Funny. What is happening? Uh, somebody once in a shop told me that this ring is made by Jay. Just to explain, listeners, we're both wearing- Zuni turquoise ring. Yeah, which is a, like a little checkerboard grid. Yeah. grid of turquoise. Yeah. That's wild, Roger. Yeah. I, it's trippy. Now I feel like, <laughs> what are the odds? Hey, man, we must be channeling, you know, Something. Native Americans. We're supposed to be here. Yeah. This is supposed to happen. Yeah, absolutely. But let's talk about this expression, because I listened to, like, old Pink Floyd, last, like, real old. Yeah. And, like, the one thing I noticed is that in order to realize the type of psychedelic music that was going, the, whatever you want to call your music, and to make it sound like music was a, a, a feat of magic and confidence that that either was innate or at that time you must have realized that you were all in what was it i was never that intellectual about it right of course oh uh, you know it, it's it's something that happened right that development of what now i understand a lot more yeah than i, than I did about it well you became more intellectual about it i mean well, also, more decisive also, well, what happened was that um, the band became popular and my major contribution to rock and roll, if you like, I mean, I've written some decent songs, but it was really to develop the theatre of arena rock, you know, which I did almost single-handedly back in the sort of middle 70s. And also to elevate the idea of the concept album completely well that's true yeah though that had been done before yeah but not like you you know there's yeah. the who sf sorrow let's not forget the pretty things yeah um anyway whatever yeah uh but but the musical thing i always i i always felt um insignificant uh you know and and somewhat inept really yeah even even the the huge records i'm not i mean even yeah yeah that's interesting. So uh, when sort of it, sort of yeah, it's sort of. In, I mean, it's more recently. Yeah. O over the years, I've come to realize that actually, I have quite a sophisticated musical brain. 
Yeah. And that I get a lot of things that other people don't notice. What made you realize that? Getting away from Pink Floyd, I think. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, I really think it was, you know, I think it was really important that I got away when I did. Yeah. Um, because what did you realize then that you had gotten stuck in a specific vision? Well, I was in a very toxic environment. Right. Where I was around, you know, some 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 people in well David and Rick mainly who were who were like always trying to drag me down. They were always trying to knock me off whatever that perch was. What your your own artistic vision? Mm, yeah, kind of. How would they do that? By by claiming that I was tone deaf and that I didn't understand music and that really yeah oh he's just a boring kind of teacher figure who tells us what to do you know but he you know he can't tune his own guitar and you know oh so they were stuff s like snotty they were very snotty yeah and snipey because they felt very insignificant I think at that point I think so yeah yeah, yeah. I think so. so and I'm not putting them down we I those years that we were together whatever it was like socially there is no question but that we 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 did some really good work together and you and were all we you all shared the vision absolutely well so, no we didn't share the vision but we shared the workload right you it was your vision most of it um well i wouldn't okay i, I wouldn't right. even say that okay but you but yeah it was <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about something else no it, uh, it's it's interesting to me well let's talk about this the other levels of music that you began to appreciate after that 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 allowed you to take in the, that you realize these things about yourself because i well, know well you know my friend etienne rodershield came up to me in what whatever year it was in 1978 yeah and said uh you know, Roger, I have, I have this libretto about the French Revolution. I want, I have no music, you know, I want. <laughs> and he smoked another 20 or 30 Goulois, Yeah. you know, and drank yeah. another bottle of whiskey, and then we started to talk about it. And so I wrote an opera to, to his libretto. And did you, like, I have no understanding of opera. Were you a fan of opera? Did no. you? I had no idea. I was I had no idea what I was doing. So, but what I what it made me realize was yeah. that given a page of text, mm -hmm. you know, I can remember the first page of this thing. Un jour, un moineau s'est posé sur un buisson. Quelqu'un l'a frappé d'un bâton, and it's a it's a poetic kind of exposition of of the later stages of the French Revolution. No, the earlier stages of the French Revolution. And what were the themes the that resonated? Well it, well, it said it actually he 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 describes um, the proletariat as birds. Really, yeah. that's his main metaphor. Mm -hmm. That's why he says one day a bird was sitting in a bush and someone hit it with a stick. A priest of no de n'importe quelle religion lui a donné raison. Pas moineau au bâton. A priest of no particular religion said, "You're right, not to the bird, but to the stick." Um, a, a warrior of no particular house or side, un guerrier de n'importe quelle maison, put the feathers of the bird on his shield. A judge from no particular institution um, decreed that the birds were not allowed to sing in the bushes. One day, ils ont changé, they changed. Pas tous, mais bon, not all of them, but a few. Uh -huh. It was the revolution, and the birds sang in the bushes. 
No, it was the first page of his thing. So that's a lot, man. That's big. It's a lot. <laughs> that is a big idea. Yeah, right? yeah, right. Yeah. And this guy was actually Catalan. He had crossed the Pyrenees at the end of the Spanish Civil War with his defeated father, who was a general in the Republican Army and lived in a refugee camp for the first ten for the first ten years of his life. Uh huh. And he was a great and dear friend of mine, Etienne Rodergil. So anyway, so I wrote this thing, but I did it, you know, like with a piano and an old Selena string synthesizer and a Lindrum and something or other. I just started writing music and right. singing all the parts. And then I thought, Christ, I better go and look at an orchestra and, you know, see where people sit. And and, and what was that like? I mean, were, were, yeah, I, it was great, you know. Being um, that kind of student to sort yeah, of like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And learning it all by looking and thinking. And then you had to write parts for orchestra. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. So then I, then I, I, I discovered somebody who's become a really good friend of mine who was teaching at the Royal Academy mm -hmm. in London, who's called Rick Wentworth, and we're very close. I saw him. He was at Desert Trip last weekend. And he was teaching composition there, and and so I said, okay, "Do you want to help? Do you want to work with us on me? I need a collaborator. I know fuck all, right? Yeah, and I have to do this. Right, I can hear it all. I've got it all, but we have to figure. You know how high does an oboe go? I've no idea what the range is <laughs> of these instruments. I can't start writing oboe parts beyond the range that they can actually play. Right, right, right. And so we worked on an old Atari program called Notator, which was one of the very first computer programs for writing music uh -huh. on a sort of little 10-inch screen. Yeah. And then eventually we moved on to Logic and Sibelius and, you know, and all kinds of stuff and and, and got through it. And the th work has been performed about 10 times, I suppose. Now, the first time you saw it performed, hearing all those instruments playing your parts, I mean, what yeah. was that experience like? Oh, oh, wonderful. Well, the first time I ever heard the orchestra playing it, we went into Abbey Road, uh, into number one at Abbey Road with a big orchestra and recorded three of the songs when I was negotiating with Sony, with um, Peter, um, yeah, Peter Gelb, who was um, CEO of Sony Classical at the time. And he decided to release the record. And so I made some I made some sort of full demos with a big orchestra to play to him. Oh wow! And then he made me translate it into English. It was all in French. Where'd you pick up French? Ils sont nos voisins. You have to learn because they live on the other side of La Manche, you know. <laughs> also, we have to conquer them from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> How would we, you know, what would we do with their women if we could not speak? <laughs> now, you learn French in school yeah. if, if you're English. Yeah. That's the first foreign language. But it's stuck. You. I mean, it doesn't always stick with people. But you, it, you I, I, My French is pretty poor, but I have a decent ear, so it sounds as if I can speak French. Right. And you've been to Abbey Road before. You know that studio. Oh, right? God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was yeah. the thing. I used to always sneak into number one uh, just to play the piano. Oh, yeah. To, to play a nine-foot concert Steinway in that room. Amazing is, is magic. You know that's the room where they did a day in the life, and yeah. the, you know the, all the big orchestral stuff right, from that. Right. It's that room. So you had to sneak in. What were you down the hall? Or yeah, what? we were in number three. <laughs> Recording no, which? Which one? Well, we put all of them. You did all of them at Abbey Road, more or less. Yeah, certainly that would be the fir the first one. You know, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Uh -huh. We were doing that in number three. 
and the Beatles were doing Sgt. Pepper's in number two. Oh, my God. And I made records in number two yeah. later. I think... Yeah, we yeah we made stuff in there as well. Was there a relationship, or did you? Did How you? dare you! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't fancy any of them. <laughs> Not even a little. I re I only met John Lennon once, to my huge regret, and that was in the control room at number two. Oh, really? And he was a bit kind of you know acerbic and surprising. It, yeah, no. no, he was just, he was quite snotty. Really. Well, I think, yeah. Well, I have to assume, like... So was I. Right. I mean, who did I talk to? Like, I can't, like, it, it, it always surprises me at that time in London. I mean, Jesus, there were so many fucking bands. Yeah. And you were all across the street. I mean, here it's like, you know, there's coast to coast, but it seemed like everybody was like, oh, shit, there's there's Mick Fleetwood, there's Peter Green, there's John Lennon, whatever. They, they were around the... There's Jimmy Page. Was everyone around? Uh, they may have been. Oh, you didn't see I wasn't, him. no. Oh, good. No, I didn't see him. You, you had your own thing. There was some talk about, you know, clubs in London like the establishment and the, this where the Rolling Stones and Beatles were all sit around doing whatever they did. But I, I never did any of that or was party to any of that. Why? I've no idea. I you weren't know. interested? Um, I, d I, honestly, I honestly can't remember why not. Oh, but you didn't go see music at that time. You weren't. You didn't feel like you were in the game. With oh, these I used other to go bands? and see music, but I didn't go and see bands. Yeah, I, d I saw the Rolling Stones once at the Gaumont State in Kilburn. Yeah, they were on a package show, and they were wearing little houndstooth jackets. They were all in <laughs> uniform. Do you remember that when they all wore yeah, uniforms? Yeah. And um, I don't think they called them uniforms, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were. They Matching were about. Outfits. They were about fifth on the bill. <laughs> yeah. who, who was on the bill? Eddie Cochran. Yeah. Howlin' Wolf. Not Howlin' Wolf. Bo Diddley. Yeah. Um, Helen Shapiro. Mickey Most. You know, it's yeah. like. Yeah. And you think back and you think, wow, how weird is that? It is weird. Speaking of Howlin' Wolf. Yeah. About around the same time, I went to the Fairfield Hall in Croydon and they had these blues packages that yeah. came over to England, mm -hmm. which I used to go to. And that that was like Howling Wolf, Lightning Hopkins, Sonny Boy Williamson, Hammy Nixon, Sleepy John Estes. The best. Incredible I got There's a picture of Wolf right there. There he is. Yeah. Yeah. About that time, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So you were a blues guy. Yeah. Yeah, because I, 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 I was wondering that, at what point you departed from it. Do you know what I mean? Because like, you can hear some of it in the music, but then it sort of it, it takes its own life. We departed from it when Bob Close who was the only bloke who could play anything in the band, yeah. uh, got a big slap on the wrist from his mum and dad who said, you've got to go to college, sell that bloody strap and get you know get a proper <laughs> so, job. So the blues guy left yeah, and you were left to your own devices. He was the only one who could play. <laughs> he was really good. He can still play. He plays classical guitar, I believe. Oh, really? Oh, he's really good. Bob Close, that's with a K, K-L-O-S-E. Did he stay in music or did he... Uh, did he get out of it and then come back no i think he play, he stayed in music as uh, you know something to enjoy for his life but I, i've no idea what career he pursued yeah well because i i was you know sort of wondering that because pink floyd in and you have always seemed to kind of mind your own planet like you know it didn't seem like there was a lot of crossover it didn't seem like you were hanging out with other bands it seemed like you know you like from very early on pink floyd was its own thing and didn't, uh, you know, and, and sort of built its own world. You know, I'm playing with Neil next week. Yeah. You you reminded me, you said about mining. Yeah. And Heart of Gold went bang into my head like that. And I thought, 
I'm paying the bridge thing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. He's I've great. Been, he I've been wanting to do it for years and years, and finally I can do it. He's another guy that built his own world. Are you guys, Do you guys get along? I don't know. You I've, don't? I've never talked to him. Why, why not? Don't you? Uh, you were hanging out. Who do you talk to? He came to one of our gigs once. Uh-huh. And David cornered him. And I'm that bloke who goes, oh, fuck you then. I'm going to sit over right, here and right. mind my own business. Let that guy make a fool exactly. out of himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play this but cool. I've been a huge fan. Yeah. Of, uh, since, you know, Buffalo Springfield. Well, the one thing you guys have in common is that the the music doesn't date itself. I mean, it's timeless shit. You know, there's no, like, it just stands forever, you know, without time. Yeah, but, well, yeah. I like to think, though, that he was always really good at it. And it's taken me 30 or 40 years to start to figure out how to write songs. When do you think that you you really felt like you could? I I mean, I'm just, I'm just uh, coming into (laughs) Come on, come on. <laughs> but maybe you're just changing. Maybe something is changing in your heart. I mean, you can't disregard the fact that you wrote some of the best rock songs ever. Uh, it's very interesting you should say that. Yeah, because they are, um, they're committed to all kinds of um, emotional and political ideas. Right. And, they, and yeah, and I agree that some of them are quite good. And some of them are quite um, perceptive, you know. Maybe beyond what you knew at the time you wrote it. Well, I don't know. Well, I'm 29 years old, and I suddenly write "Ticking Away the Moments That Make Up a Dull Day." You've written <sighs> "Waste Your Hours" and an offhand way kicking around on pieces, just like scribbling it out. Just right, right, boom, boom, boom. right. That's done. That's, uh, and 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 like you know, probably I love that a, song. Probably a few. <laughs> well, you know, because it, probably a few years later, I yeah. went, "Wow, how weird to have that realization." that old 29 years old before you figure out that you've missed the beginning of the race and then to write it down in a few lines like that is actually quite but it's unconscious sure it wasn't like i thought oh now i know how to write a song you're a vessel i am thank you yeah and a vassal Uh (laughs) (laughs) well that stuff i i mean do you feel i was i was talking to somebody about the the kind of tone that that all those you know those middle Floyd records have, there they it, you know I know people say they're dark and everything, but there's a comfort to that minor chord. There's a comfort to that yeah. atmosphere, that 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 sort of like that mind opening minor atmosphere. That no matter how dark the the content was, to live in that place is like a big warm blanket of rain. Yeah. And and do you do you know where that comes from emotionally? I mean, now that you're sort of shifting in, in how you are engaging in the world and how you, your heart is opening in a new way, do you find that that, that, that period was, was something you were working through, that there was a darkness that you haven't been able to shake? I don't know if I'd put it like that, uh, p- particularly in terms of the musicology. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it may be as true that if you grow up with no music in your life at all, you, and there's a radio in the house, but there's never any music on it. And you might listen to Saturday Night Theatre, you know, with your mother and your brother. And But there's no music ever anywhere. Yeah. And so, you know, almost the first thing that you hear in your life is Hound Dog or Singing the Blues. Not Guy Mitchell, Tommy Steele. But, oh, so, you know, that yeah. shit. Then, at some point, you realize that when you hear... Marla's Fifth Symphony 
you can't speak or do anything except wonder at the effect that it is ha having on you. So, so I be I became aware of really what what music is beyond pop music, jazz and well, blues. jazz and blues, yeah, really. Right, jazz and blues was my introduction. But I was suddenly becoming aware of you know of the complexity of all those minor cadences that, yeah. that you hear in that right sad stuff that right. people write in adagios, you know, and you go, whoa, um, there's a whole world here opening up in front of me. And you can hear it as well in in songs that people write. So it's all over Dylan. And, right. And it's in the Beatles as well. It's sure. All, it's, a, it's actually all over popular music if, if you... You don't even have to search for it. You just hear it. Right. Neil is just... It's all over it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, but that, that's a very specific atmosphere to live in. Yeah. And I, I, can't, I can't quite describe it because it resonates with me. I don't know if it resonates with everybody, but the blues and then on through what you're talking about in this minor universe, there, there's something like... It, it, what, what is it? Like, it somehow placates the sadness and elevates it to almost a good thing <laughs> yeah and but and it's but it's it's also an emotional thing um, it's the emotion is connected to the mathematics of okay of the music yeah but it's but it but also you suddenly discover that um you know it's like i i heard john talking on your program john prime yeah. talking and he's talking about Hello in there, which yeah. I actually, oh. I performed that at the Newport Folk Festival last year because it's one of my favorite oh, songs so beautiful. in the whole history of everything. Yeah. And you hear him talking about how he, you know, was delivering laundry to an old people's home and yeah. he would talk to the. I did that as a kid. As you well. did? I did the laundry delivery thing. That smell of crap and piss, you know, in yeah. those hampers of stuff from old people's homes and things. Yeah. It, it, it definitely connects you to... The transience, transient nature of life. of life, yeah. Well, yeah, that's the whole arc of, a, of those records, some of them, huh? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm fascinated that, obviously, Prine's one of the great songwriters ever, but you, you also like, you know, you like Neil, I imagine you like the band, and you like those guys. Yeah. Liv on home became a, a friend, or, mm -hmm. well, not really, couldn't become a friend, I hardly yeah. knew him, but right. I, I felt a huge affinity, uh -huh. you know, and I went up there a couple of times. To Woodstock or wherever, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, so there's a huge attachment. But if you were in rock and roll in 1969, yeah, when Big Pink came out, you just went, "Fuck me!" Everything changed overnight. Suddenly, nothing was the same again. Really? Oh, absolutely. What but, was it exactly? Because I've heard it, that from, it, I, it, it was it was them gathering together in a room with all the kit, all the stuff together without. A huge amount of separation and humor, and playing, and the band playing together, and it was about—I think it was about the sonics of open plan recording, mm -hmm. and um, and also the fact that they had Livon, and and um, so the sound of the kit is completely unlike the sound that anybody else had ever recorded. The drums were always taken from a jazz tradition, where yeah. the kit was somewhere at the back. Uh -huh. You know, and yeah. the guy was probably doing things that were complicated and clever and what. But basically, the kit was recorded with, you know, two top mics. You right, know? right. A couple of U77s over the top, or even or even tinier mics. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. And really, what was going on that was of any importance was down at the front, 
you know, with Dizzy Gillespie or yeah. you know, or whoever it was, right, playing saxophone or trumpet or right. whatever. And so, was all going on, but you didn't get doom. You didn't. There right. wasn't any of that right. foot that right. ripped your heart out every time. You know. It, yeah. He hit it, and yeah. and so suddenly the, it, there was a. I don't know. I don't know who engineered those records or what, but they were different. I know Todd and, Rundgren did one, and everybody after that, everybody, everything changed. I've only heard one. I mean, I read that. I read Clapton talk about it. That like once that happened, he like had to rethink everything. Yeah. That you know that he he actually felt like well now now it's been done. Now what? Yeah, but that's very Eric. He's so defeatist. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are buddies? Yeah. He just keeps going, man. He keeps going deeper and further back sometimes. It's yeah. Really interesting. Well, he's claiming, we're well, not claiming. I think he's having problems now with his fingers and Ugh. nerves and this and that and the other. I think Keith is too. So is Dylan. Yeah. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. How are your fingers? Pretty good. I'm, what? I'm pretty fit. Oh, that's good. Were you a Danko fan too? Did you like the way he played? Yeah. I, he, he seemed like such a sweet presence, man. Yeah. Great voices. They could all sing too. That's the other oh, fascinating uh, thing. Amazing, yeah. And yeah, they were absolutely, and Richard Emmanuel as well. Oh my God. And they were obviously, I mean, I didn't know any of them. I met Rick a bit afterwards. I don't know. I must have been in LA in the 70s, you know, 75. I was yeah. going through one of my many divorces. And, uh, How many you had? Uh, let's not go there. How many kids you got? Um, three. Yeah? How yeah. they doing? Good? Yeah. That's good. One one of them's in my band. Oh, that's great. My eldest son. What's he play? Hammond. Oh, that's great. Piano. Is it? Is that fun? Are you proud? Is yeah, it yeah. exciting? Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. he good at it? Yeah, he is good at it. Yeah, otherwise he wouldn't be in the band. <laughs> did he? Did he grow up around it? I mean, were you? Did, was he? Yeah, on he the always road? played piano. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was always always keen. And now you got a, a, Do you have a? Are you married now? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay, I'm single. Yeah. Yeah. How's that? Um, it's going quite well. Okay. <laughs> that's a, that's good. It's seventy three, right? Yeah. Okay. You know, this being single thing, I did fall in deeply, deeply, deeply in love about a year ago. And uh, I'm not going to talk about that, except to say that that has opened up fresh horizons. Yeah? Yeah. So I've written some love songs. So being in love is different than it was before? Yeah. Or? With all due respect to my sure. many ex-wives. Well, I mean, that's something that evolves, you know, the depth of that kind of thing and what you let go of as you move along. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, so, if it didn't, you know, we might just as well go out the back and have somebody shoot us. <laughs> so there's, so there's going to be some love songs is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, there are. Yeah. And is that new to you? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's never been my forte. It, does it feel, uh, does it make you feel insecure or vulnerable to do it? That doesn't make me feel insecure and vulnerable. I mean, I think. Love it, doesn't, but I mean to write about it. No, no, I mean, oh, really? to write about it doesn't. Right. Oh, love does. Oh, yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Scary shit, right? It is. <laughs> oh, God, my God, yeah. You open yourself up to love. Trusting. It's the, it's, it's the hardest, most kind of dangerous thing that anybody can do. And that's why, and that's, you know, on a personal level with a woman. Um, but it points the way maybe to the fact that 
there is only one path worth walking in life, and that is to uh, attempt, insofar as you can, to open yourself up to everybody else as well. You know, if you, if it, that is, that is the mission: is to discover how much you can open yourself up. So to, this is a tearing to down the rest of, of humanity of that wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you feel like because I listened to Final Cut the other day? Yeah. And, you know, you brought up Lennon, and I think that, you know, there are some, some songs on there that have the intensity, emotional intensity of, of some of the stuff that he did post-Beatles yeah. that, like, I saw a common thread there of, of trying to resolve that anger. That first album he made. I mean, if you recognize some similar intensity, that is a huge compliment, and I accept, I will accept it, because, you know, that first album that he made with mother on it and think, oh my god i mean that yeah that like just song. thinking about that song just thinking about that song. Like you, <laughs> yeah yeah did you feel that you were working through similar kind of emotional letting go or 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 you know uh, oh i think yeah absolutely i i probably it's every man's experience to some degree or another but um i feel as if my experience was maybe you know quite close to his well yeah i, I absolutely relate well, you both to that grew up without fathers yeah and he, like uh, you know i know people that that does leave a a, a darkness a hole that yeah. you know that is aggravated and and seeks to put out into the world yeah yeah do you feel like you're getting a little closure on that well, yeah, because, you know, this old bloke who I met in, in Italy, Harry Schindler, who's mm -hmm. become a good friend of mine, he's 95 years old now, he, he saw me on TV in Italy a few years ago, and he decided to find out where my father was killed, and he actually got the local people there, it's a town called Aprilia, near Rome, uh, to build a monument to my father, and we went and unveiled it a few years ago. Uh, in fact, 2014. Really? February the 18th, which was the 70th anniversary of my father's death. We actually unveiled this monument. Um, so that that was very moving and very cool. Uh, but I think I've, you know, I've kind of worked through that yeah. so much. I'm much more concerned now um, with the general picture. Yeah. And so I'm quite involved politically with a number of things. Yeah. Um, but, but, but. Um, I brought something with me, okay. which I'll share with you if you want. Sure. Or not, because it's a bit long. No, let's do it. You want me to? Yeah, I love it. Okay. Is it a poem? It is. Beautiful. All right. I'm in. Be all right. All right. Yeah. It's called, Is This the Life We Really Want? I'm very concerned with the idea that we're at perpetual war. Yeah. I can hear all those millions of fingers all over the world hitting the escape button oh for fuck's sake not no way. again what's he gonna no no way <laughs> no way are you kidding like you know the the interesting thing about talking to you and, and talking to people in general is that when you actually have a conversation yeah. nobody turns away right <laughs> i'm sure you're right but they would say oh no he's going to read a poem now so this is no longer a conversation. Now, now he's going to start telling us. You're Roger Waters. I had I had Sir Ian McKellen in here, and he did a Shakespeare monologue, and people would not, they loved it. I love him. Oh, he's great. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, this is the right venue for it, my friend. We did a human rights evening once, and he was asleep on the floor in the corridor. I had to step over him to get to the stage, <laughs> which is really great. I thought, wow, how cool is that? All right. I'm gonna, I wrote this, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. I wrote this during the Bush-Cheney years. So if I'm talking about Bush and Cheney, it's because it was then. But nothing's really changed. Do you uh, do you ever consider like do you publish the poetry? I mean, do, do I will. It? I will at some point. I will. I definitely will. How, how many of the poems become songs? One, one. Yeah. Which? Um. When the time comes and the last day dawns, and the air of the piper warms the high crags of the old country, when the holy writ blows like burned paper away and wise men concede that there's more than one way more than one path more than one book more than one fisherman more than one hook when the i can't remember the rest of it it's called crystal clear brooks and it turned into a song i did it at newport last year when when the cats have all been skinned and the fish have all been hooked when the masters of war are our masters no more when old friends take their whiskey outside on the porch, raise a glass to their comrades who carried their torches, we will have done well if we're able to say as the sun settles down on that last final day that we never gave in, that we did all we could so the kids could go fishing in crystal clear brooks. Nice. That was a poem that I set to music. Cause Has I it been it. Uh, recorded yet? No. Okay. Is it gonna? Uh, yeah, maybe. I, we we worked on it a bit. I wo I'm working with Nigel Godrich, and we worked on it a little bit. Uh, in fact, he suggested a passing has suggested a passing chord in it, which I think's improved it because it was all E flat and B flat. So he said, "Why not put a D minor?" I don't know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> I like it. I, I like guitar talk. Okay. Right. This is okay. This is this now. Okay. Here we go. Is this the life we really want? The concept of an average guy is patently absurd. There's too much differential in the herd. Just look at Bush and Cheney, then look at you and me. It's like comparing Shakespeare to reality TV. Is this the life we really want? Being murdered by these clowns, our children crushed in rubble. Are we deafened by the sound of media mouths all moving in apparent unity, spewing out the mantra of the free? Free to plan the neo-land, safe in their bomb-proof lairs. Free to send our sons to war. Our sons, of course, not theirs. Free to burn and pillage, to fill the family vault. Free to claim it's dog-eat-dog -dog and really not their fault. Fear drives the mills of modern man. Fear keeps us all in line. Fear of all those foreigners. Fear of all their crimes. Is this the life we really want? It surely must be so, for this is a democracy, and what we all say goes. We all say, kill bin Laden, kill Saddam Hussein, kill anyone collateral who might get in the way, kill all the dogs and shopkeepers, kill all the coppersmiths, kill everyone who cross chooses to be on the evil list, kill everyone who doesn't want to be our acolyte, kill everyone who disagrees that what we say is right. It's going to cost us trillions, already has in fact, but no price is too heavy to keep the faith intact. Because we believe in freedom, human rights for everyone. Well, everyone, that is, except the ones we need to bomb. And if some of them are children and seem a bit forlorn, it's not our fault. 
they should have chosen somewhere different to be born. Anyway, I'm sure they'll all agree it's a success when we've killed all the insurgents and tidied up the mess. Even though they may be crippled or rotting underground, they'll be happy when democracy's the only game in town. They can help to build our bases, they can wash our fancy cars, they can service all our carnal needs in pickup joints and bars. Against their religion? Pfft, their religion's wrong. I'm sure they'll get the hang of it, catch on before too long. Then they can all watch baseball, they can build a Disneyland, eat pizza and McDonald's, drink bourbon, start a band. I know, I know, no alcohol. The towel heads don't drink. What the fuck, they'll soon get used to it. We'll teach them how to drink. I digress. I'm sorry, what was my train of thought? Oh yes, now I remember. Is this what we all ought to be devoting our resources to? To spread this rotten creed, teaching their dead children avarice and greed? Was it Truman Capote who famously railed, It's not enough that I succeed, I need others to fail. Is that the life we really want, to set ourselves at odds with every other species, not to mention other gods? I don't think so. In general, my experience has been that ordinary Americans, when asked to cite their dream, conjure an existence where they can raise their kids without the chafe of blowing other people's kids to bits. Is it my imagination? Is it too much to suggest that their leaders over there and our leaders in the West are driven not by trying to achieve peace in our time, but by something else, by something altogether less sublime. Call me a cynic, but it sometimes seems to me that some of them are more attached to power than to peace. Just supposing, for a moment, that they're in it for the cash, that they're looking out for number one, building up their stash, what better way to divert the attentions of the poor than an axis of evil and a good old-fashioned war? It's like economics 101, as every schoolboy knows. War is good for business and diverts us from our woes. It's so unpatriotic to complain about our lot when our brave boys are out there in the desert getting shot. Imagine if the money that we're spending on the war was used instead to rebuild dikes and help rehouse the poor to research cures for cancer and fund institutes to delve into ways of helping people less well-off than ourselves to secure our docks and airports and our power stations, to prevent the disaffected in our own and other nations from expressing their attachment to some vengeful deity in self-immolation, immolating you and me? Or is it power that gets them, being able to decide how to divvy up the cake, who should live, who should die, to have at their disposal all those sexy tanks and planes, got you, no, I got you first, reliving boyhood games? Why don't we... Just stop them. Why don't we get tough, take to the streets in millions, say enough is enough? Why? Why? It's obvious because actually we, that's you and me, that's all of us, because actually we, all the blacks and all the whites, Chicanos, Asians, every type of ethnic group, even folks from Guadeloupe, the old, the young, the toothless hags, the supermodels, actors, fags, Football stars, men in bars, washerwomen, tailors, tarts, grannies, grandpas, uncles, aunts, friends, relations, homeless tramps, clerics, truckers, cleaners, ants. Maybe not ants, because it's true that ants don't have enough IQ to differentiate between the pain that other people feel and, well, for instance, cutting leaves or crawling across windowsills in search of open treacle tins. So like the ants, are we just dumb? Is that why we don't feel or see? Or are we really just numbed out on reality TV?
So every time, every time, the roadside mine, the guided bomb, the ricochet, the Gatling gun, the tomahawk, the phantom mirage, RF squawk, the IED, the false LO, the cluster bomb with fries to go, every time, the curtain falls on some forgotten foreign life. Rest assured it is because we did nothing to prevent our masters, dedicated as they are, not to protection of the weak, not to democracy, that we did nothing to prevent their headlong dash to maximise the bottom line. So what, if anything, to do? Well, understand that every day, in many small but central ways, we get to choose. Enslavement to the bottom line, with all that that implies, dog-eat-dog, god-eat-god, did I mention freedom fries? Anyway, we get to choose, or so we're all led to believe, well, now in 2008, election year, who knows? It may well be too late, but just suppose, just suppose, if we all vote, and we can start to bridge the gap between what we all have become and what we all just might have been, the gap between the blind and blinkered great unwashed, the laughing stock, the butt of universal scorn and enmity and wrath and grace and pride and leadership and light and beacons shining in the west admired by both the old world and the third safe haven for the lauded claims in constitutions written fair on parchment years ago when equality fraternity and liberty were rocks core bedded in an earth emerging from a darker age i do believe that we can spread our wings take flight renounce the darkness of the marketplace reach out across the ideologues abyss embrace our longing to be kinder i and have more fun and garnish less the money lenders nests and touch and sing and breathe in relish of our new unfettered selves embrace the law in that we all agree that standard issue kicking in our door tapping phones rendition torture waterboarding and the rest the random shooting down on London's underground of someone's nephew from Brazil, however scared the powers that be, are alien to our beliefs. And so should be confined to memories of Hitler's Reich and, of course, to Uncle Joe's gulag archipelagos. So are we babies that we need to be protected from ourselves, that left unfettered, thrashing we might hurt ourselves, that they... The Cheneys, Putins, Bushes, Blairs, and all their spawn, and all their heirs, in all their ruinous, bankrupt, fearful crap, that they should somehow have the power to keep us at each other's throats. Impotent, straight-jacketed, squabbling over dimes and groats, like infants in our swaddling clothes. Fuck them. Enough. They've had their time. A new day dawns and we will not be swaddled in their grime. Yes. It feels good, right? Yeah. Doesn't it feel good to read it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of a bit McGonagall. It's doggerel, really. It's not, but, but it's heartfelt. Yeah. What's what's kind of sick is that it's eight years old. Right. I say, I suddenly realized 2008, so that must have been the Obama. That's the right year before, I played yeah. at Coachella when I dropped confetti saying, vote Obama. Oh, yeah. And I'm glad I did because, by and large, I think his his legacy will be looked upon with pride. And, yeah. And, you know, he, 
He did his best. He, he definitely he's did. Just you know, his hands are tied, obviously, and we're not quite sure by who. Right. There is some somewhere in in those back rooms, somebody is tying the hands of good men. Of course. And so, but and we will maybe never know. But that's why it's so important to applaud Edward Snowden, for instance, as mm -hmm. a great hero of the Republic. Uh, in that he gives the rest of us a f a, at least a slightly fairer chance um, to examine what is going on behind the locked doors and to not abrogate our inclusion in the process. Well, I think you always knew what it was. It's to not let capitalism be diminished ever. I mean, that's that's what they're protecting. Oh, that's that's their plan. Yeah. Well, well I mean, yeah. Well, but as as we know, it it is a short step from, you know, um, Amendment Ten Twenty One to out to all out total fascism and a complete police state where nobody has any. And it's always insidious in its when it creeps up. Yes, it was insidious in Germany in the thirties. You know, when national socialism came and and. This is feel, national Trumpism feels a bit less insidious, but it's it's just as dangerous. It's exploiting the anger, the despair, and the hopelessness yeah. of people that feel like their world is going away. Yeah, and 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 the um, the method for taking over the state and for it becoming a totalitarian police state is always the same, and it is always the identification of the other as the enemy. Right. So in Trump's case, it's the Chinese and the Mexicans and Islam and who, it doesn't yeah. matter who it is. You know, with, with sure. Hitler, Hitler, it was the Jews and the communists and the yeah. gypsies and, yeah. they, and anybody who had a physical deformity or whatever it might be and sure. homosexuals and whatever. But they you were have all to, lumped together. You yeah. have to have that desperate, angry populace. But you have to have a population that feels defeated, like yeah. the Germans did after the Treaty of Versailles. And, yeah. and, and so they were, you know. So what you have in the States now, where everybody's standard of living is falling as like a free fall, um, and, and also where um, the freedoms that are enshrined in your constitution and uh, are in the Bill of Rights are being slowly eroded and taken away from you. You know, if they decided now today, if they listen to this thing and they go, oof, he's stepped, I could be arrested tomorrow under the laws in the United States of America, I could disappear tomorrow and you would never hear of me again. I wouldn't be allowed a phone call to anybody no lawyer, no representation, nothing. I can. It is now legal for the government, if they decide to take me or any U.S. citizen off the street under the threat and of you terrorism, disappear, of terrorism. Mm -hmm. All I have to be is suspected of being. And given my position on BDS and Israel Palestine, it's really easy to do that. They'll probably but, just send you back to England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to me, We've had enough of this guy. May. Yeah. And how lovely that would be. <laughs> anyway. Do you still have a place? Whatever, there? you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can laugh about it. Well. But what, what what's scary is that the law exists. Yes. And why aren't that? Why hasn't the Patriot Act been revoked? Yeah. Why is why is the executive branch getting more and more power? Why is it now legal for the president of the United States to kill U.S. citizens with drones somewhere in the world? Yeah. Why? How how is that possible? 
Is that what? Well, I think it has a lot to do with, like, you know, on the record, Amused to Death, I guess you took the title from Postman's book. Did, yeah. did you read that book? Of course. Yeah. Well, I'm I mean, yeah. that's how it happens. Like, I, I pulled my copy of it out because it, it was one of those books where it's like, oh, my God, it's all here. Yeah. All the answers. This is why it's happening. Yeah. It's all here. Yeah. You know, in, in this book, because I pulled it out and it's underlined and I'm like, this is how you do it? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's so distracted by now that... The, the same at the same pace that they're taking these freedoms that you talk about away they're tenfold giving us more things to be preoccupied with yeah so so they, people don't see it as is affecting their life no they don't and that that to to cross that gap how is this affecting my life i'm okay we're in the garage i'm gonna go eat something after and you know i'm, I'm you know i'm comfortable yeah and this is the greatest country on earth and it has the best of everything uh, and when you tell them no it doesn't and no it isn't it's the richest it's got the most weapons kills more people than anyone else incarcerates more people but it doesn't have the best you know health care or education or any of the things that other people in the world think are fundamental um, indicators of a, of a just civilized. and healthy and civilized society you don't have them right you have, you have a huge number of very, very poor people. You know, why? You're the richest country. How is that possible? How is it possible that you don't look after your veterans when they've been off? Yeah. Whatever the wars are about or whatever. Right. How is that possible? Um, not quite sure. But I think a lot of people in this country don't believe that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. And I think that it, that's, that is turning out to be the majority. But I don't think that that majority does know or acknowledge how their own quality of life is being chipped away at. Well well this is this is this is why it is so important to understand then that the system of government is broken, that Congress is for sale, and that you are in really, really dire straits. And yeah. that somehow you need to organize yourselves to figure out how to get this thing back on the rails so that it's not a runaway train well here's how here's how the most people respond it's like i i'm I, that's gonna sounds like a, i'm busy yeah but it seems like you're 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 motivated in that the message is one of unity and it's uh and love absolutely you know when you see all these people drowning in the mediterranean you can either throw your hands up in horror and say, yeah. keep them the fuck out of my country, they're going to take my job. Or you can go, what is going on? Why is this happening? Why is where they live, i.e. Syria, say, to take a good example, uninhabitable? And why do we want to throw more bombs on it? You know, yeah. it's a fire. It's a raging out of control fire. What are we going to do? Let's throw gasoline on it or drop bombs on it. That's obviously, no, it's not the answer. We need to start addressing some of the broader issues. I think the broadest issue is with, without, and who'll deny that's what all the, what the fighting's all about. I think that's the main issue that we need. All right, well, hopefully... All right, let's talk about something else. I know you <laughs> people don't want to hear this rubbish. No, no, it's not rubbish. It's important. I and know. It's, it, you, know, you know what I just realized when you're saying it, and, and being that I, I did political talk radio for like two, almost two years, is that... The weight that happens in your heart when you talk about this is is it's a weird mixture of I'm not doing enough and hopelessness. Yeah. And it's very easy to turn that in on yourself than to actually say, I'm going to go do that something. Yeah. It's a lot easier for me to relieve that feeling by eating some cake. Yeah. And that's a, that's a sad indication of, of how exactly the consumer culture 
placates people. If there are enough people that are okay versus people who are in horrible shape, yeah. then the okay people don't think it's their problem. Yep. But uh, let's talk about next week's performance. Are you changing it at all from the one you did last week? Yeah. What are you going to do? I'm dropping pigs on the wing, part one and two. Really? Yeah. What? Why? For theatrical reasons. Oh. Like, we, there's this part in the show, for anyone who was there last week will remember it, where we have, like, Battersea Power Station and uh, the chimneys come in three in three dimensions these yeah. chimneys that were 30 foot high come out of the top of of a model of the building right that is there and are deployed and it takes about half a minute to deploy these huge chimneys with yeah. lots and lots of noise and kerfuffle and sirens yeah, and god yeah. knows what and it's a great theatrical moment after that i started singing pigs on the wing and i've realized that it would be much better theater to continue the sound effects that are going in the quad, which is beautiful. I mean, uh, uh, Trip Caliph and uh, Claire Brothers, and who've made the quad system, it's fun. it's really wonderful out there. To not do pigs on the wing, which is just a bloke singing with an acoustic, but but to keep the theatre and go straight into dogs, so the so so that very scary, you know, you've got to be crazy, you've got to have a real need, comes out of that theater right right so i have to drop pigs on the wing but you're going to keep the chimneys oh fuck yeah the chimneys <laughs> the chimneys are just magical people just their jaws full so like so it, does mine i mean i love it i well, love well they'll getting back to what you feel was your contribution to modern rock music which was the theater of it yeah that uh you know you're natural to opera in a way you were been doing opera all along yeah so when you started to really focus on that stuff um, it seems like, you know, there was no limit to getting what you wanted to get done done on a theatrical level. And it really it sort of paid off creatively yeah. and also making its mark on, you know, just uh, lesions of adolescent, you know, people who were like, holy fuck. Yeah. You know, the thing about it is, though, and which I've I've seen as the years have gone by is it's not you can't just throw money and, you know, build something. Right. Uh, you got to conceive it. The trick is having the idea. Right. You can't do the wall show unless you think, oh, I've got a good idea. Let's build a wall between us and the audience, which is the stupidest idea that, you know, that anybody's ever had. Uh -huh. And yet it's the, probably the strongest idea that a anybody will ever have in terms of rock and roll theater is that. Well, who is even in that? Who's even in the league of actually doing theater with with uh, you know depth and and message and metaphor and you know arc, who does it other than you really? Nobody. <laughs> but they thought they did by using Mark Fisher and you know and throwing money at it, and and people and and people did, and naming no names, a lot of other bands yeah. have produced spectacle. Right, spectacle. Well, that's different. Well, it's still something. No, yeah, it's, it's still it know. makes it it makes the brain the endorphins go. Yeah, but it doesn't make you go like. Whoa, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. You want some of that? Yeah, yeah, you do. Well, I do. <laughs> well, it's great talking to you, man. Thank you for no, coming very by. Very nice talking to you. Happy birthday, John Prine. For a guy that didn't seem to uh, to want to talk about the past too much, I, I think we, we got there enough and we had a nice conversation about a lot of things. It was great to meet him because you got to remember... How fucking great Pink Floyd 
really is. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for my dates upcoming. Nashville, Chicago, all of them. I'll reel them off another time. Let's play a little guitar and get out of here. For those of you who care, Stratocaster, Vibe Reverb, Earthquaker, Dispatch Master, know where we're going now? And a Earthquaker Ghost Echo. <laughs>